Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Twitter has also been, like, super unhelpful about how to pronounce names for this play. (laughs) Okay, Um, (laughs) we'll just do our best. Yeah, but elsewhere on the internet, the only one I was really concerned about uh, is listen listen on up Uh to this. Oh, is this the Google pronounce thing? Yeah, Yeah. here we go. Here we go. Zanke. Zanke? Zanke. Okay. I was thinking Zanchi, but yeah, sure. So was I, but since she is an enslaved woman, fictional though she may be, I would like to treat her with respect. To the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about John Webster's The White Devil. Because, you know, Halloween or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, each week on this here podcast, we discuss a different play, sometimes by Shakespeare, sometimes it's not. This week it's a 101 level episode. Aubrey, what does that mean? That means introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its themes. Sometimes sometimes we get around a theme. Um, and, and other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our opinions, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But first, because it's season four, we're going to kick it off with Happy Hour, which is Clink. just, you know, shit that we like. Stuff that makes us happy. Like puppies and anti-racist pedagogy and other things yeah and like decolonization (laughs) and inclusion oh love those things love love them love Love them all yeah what do you got for us this week aubrey okay um even though they're i'm gonna invert the order even though i wrote this um so (laughs) i'm just like do what um, you want, babe. It's your I show. I <laughs> think I will. So um, the first the first thing is uh, yet another book recommendation because Jess and I can't seem to get enough of those. Um, and apparently both of us did a lot of fucking reading during quarantine mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. hiatus time. Um, <laughs> but I read a really awesome book and started like getting into the movement that kind of goes along with it. Um, I read The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And if you Google The Body is Not an Apology, there's like a whole website for like radical body liberation and all kinds of body stuff. It's it's not bound by like size. It's like race, gender, whatever. It's like ultimate inclusion, um, radical self-love. Um, follow The Body is Not an Apology on Instagram Look them up on Facebook if you're on Facebook. Sonia Renee Taylor herself is a really strong Instagram presence, and she's, like, dropping knowledge bombs all the goddamn time. And she's a poet, and she's just eloquent, and she's really incredible to listen to. And her book is a really great read. It's a short read. You know, it's a, around 200 pages or so. It's just a really great, affirming read. So interact with that movement or that book as much or as little as you want, but I highly recommend it. The second one is Pure Joy, and I have Jess to thank for it. It's a really simple (laughs) recipe for crumpets using your sourdough discard. And I love it. I've been making crumpets like every fucking weekend, and it's so decadent because in my brain it's like, ooh, tea and crumpets with the queen. Hmm." And it sounds like such a bougie fucking thing to eat. But it takes literally 10 minutes and a bunch of sourdough goo and a little bit of sugar and a little bit of baking soda. And that's it. (laughs) And like, it's the best. Um, So we will post the links to both of those things on our landing page for this episode so that you too can have a little bit of crumpet joy. And it's so fucking easy. Oh, it's so easy. Mm -hmm. So what you got, Jess? Um, So I, like you, have two recommendations. One of them's a little fluffy and one's not. I'm going to start with the fluffy one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The fluffy one is a book called Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. And when I tell you, it wrecked me. I 
love this book. So I've been reading a lot of like fluffy, royal, romancy, gooey, cause escapist, cause 2020. Hell yeah. Um, and my biggest complaint about all of the books that I was reading was that they just weren't diverse enough. They weren't gay enough. They weren't, I wanted, I wanted more color and I wanted more queer. Um, and then just by happenstance, I found this book and let me just, the premise for you real quick is the biracial son of the first woman president of the United States accidentally discovers he's bisexual and <laughs> falls in love cool. with the very, very gay Prince Henry of England. Amazing. <laughs> and they write torrid love letters to each other and quote like famous gay love letters from history and it's beautiful it's a beautiful beautiful stunning wonderful book and you know how like in every like romance there's like the third act where like they break up and they can't be together yeah like that because it's that happens that happens sure but it happens so much like earlier, I guess, right? Like they, they don't break up and get back together and then suddenly it's the end. Like there's still a whole lot of stuff that happens and it's set in 2020. And so president mom is up for reelection and she's running against, you know, a horrible white supremacist homophobe piece of shit. It felt hopeful and it was beautiful and it's sexy. <gasps> Oh, it is sexy. Ooh, it's just I I devoured it. It's like 500 pages, and I think I read it in like 18 hours or something. Um, it's so good. It's Amazing. so 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 good. It might be the best book I've read this year. Of course, I'm probably gonna say that about the book that I re recommend next week. So anyway, I'm just good. glad that so many books are making you feel good. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I love that. Uh, yeah, so, you know, if you want that in your life, maybe you should read it. Um, okay, so then my second recommendation is uh, pretty new. Um, the Folger, our friends at the Folger, have been running a Critical Race Conversations series mm -hmm. um, since uh, July-ish, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we probably haven't mentioned it yet, we although haven't. maybe we have, but yeah. I don't think um, we have, no. So anyway, so these, these are you know, hour-ish long conversations between scholars who are working on critical race theory in some kind of capacity. Um, they're streamed live on the Folgers YouTube channel, and then they are uh, meticulously captioned and, like, re-uploaded or whatever. Um, so anyway, so the most recent one is up now, and that is with Jennifer Park and Gitanjali Shahani, and their uh, their talk title is um, We Are What You Eat, Conversations on Food and Race, and it is incredible, and it's the most, like, conversational of all of these that they've done so far, and really models such a generous give-and-take kind of academia, and it's really accessible. It's not, like, high concepts. It's not a lot of theory. It's a lot of beautiful images, a lot of really fascinating stuff about bodies. Um, so we'll throw a link up to that on our episode page. Do check it out. It's well worth your time. Awesome. A couple of brilliant women talking about yeah. brilliant stuff. So Yeah. And the rest of Folger's stuff is still up on their website too, like the conversations mm -hmm. from back in yes. July. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all yeah. they're all up there. Um David Sterling Brown and Jennifer Stover did one mm -hmm. on like uh breaking the sonic color line, um, mm -hmm. the sound of whiteness. Um Netta Medizade and Ombreen Databahoy did one on uh, pedagogical best practices in the classroom. Yeah, that one was so good. That was so good. I think maybe these are the those are the only three. Has there been another one? There was one that was scheduled that got rescheduled right. that hasn't happened yet. Um, it's entirely right. possible I'm missing one, but there haven't been many. Yeah. Like, but you can is, definitely check them out yeah. on their website and yeah, see them. Do all. they're they're fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. and just as a an aside, I I really love to see the Folger, which is a very white, very historically white institution 
in an incredible place of privilege putting their actions where their words are right like everybody and their mother this summer was like we stand with scholars of color and we're doing things and here's our mission but the Folgers actually like doing shit and I am pleased to see that because I love the Folger so very very much so woohoo and that is our happy hour so let's talk about John Webster now. Yeah, it's time to meet the contemporary John Webster. This is your life again. Yeah, again. Yeah. So we talked about John Webster uh, way, way, way back when we did Duchess of Malfi, which was last season sometime. Yeah, it's yeah. spring, but I don't remember when. It's so like, it's been a while. Anyway, eight million years ago. <laughs> yes, in the before times, maybe not in the before oh, times. Maybe it was slightly after the before times. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's in the after times. So John Webster is the weirdo, dirt-covered, mouse-killing child in Shakespeare in Love. That's in the yes. documentary. You're familiar. Everyone's familiar with this documentary, Shakespeare Plenty in Love. Plenty of blood. That's the only writing. When I write plays, they'll be like Titus. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That was a historical reenactment right there. Okay, so um, John Webster was born in 1580 and died maybe in 1634. His life is pretty obscure, and the dates of his birth and death are not exactly known, except for the years, obviously. His father was a carriage maker, also named John Webster. Uh, he married a blacksmith's daughter named Elizabeth Coates in 1577. Um, it is likely that young master webster was born not long after that um in or near london on august 1st 1598 quote john webster lately of the new inn was admitted to the middle temple one of the inns of court uh in view of the legal interests evident in his dramatic work this might be him it's probably him maybe him um a lot of these guys dropped out of law school and went into the theater we've discovered <laughs> so it's fine um webster married 17 year old sarah Peniel, I guess is how you pronounce her name, uh, in March of 1605 at St. Mary's Church in Islington. A special license had to be obtained to permit a wedding during Lent, because, which was necessary because Sarah was seven months pregnant at that point. Their first child, John Webster III, they're so creative in the Webster family, uh, was baptized at the parish of St. Dunstan in the West in March of 1606. Uh, by 1602, we know that Webster was working with teams of playwrights on history plays, most of which never made it into print and are therefore lost. Um, these included a tragedy called Caesar's Fall, which was written in collaboration with Michael Drayton, Thomas Decker, Thomas Middleton, and Anthony Monday, and a collaboration with Thomas Decker called Christmas Comes But Once a Year, which just sounds so boring. Yeah. But who am I to judge? Um, also, with Decker, he wrote a play about Thomas Wyatt, which was called Sir Thomas Wyatt. <laughs> um, later, he worked with Decker again on two city comedies, The Ho Plays, Westward Ho, Northward Ho. There is also a Southward Ho. And an no, Eastward Ho. No, no, no. There is an Eastward Ho. There is not a Southward Ho. There yes. are three Ho Plays. <laughs> Two of them this guy was involved in. There's three hoes. Can't keep them straight. The fourth one is missing. Yeah, we're missing a hoe. Um, Yeah, he did some shit. He collaborated, Mm -hmm. he revised, he did things. He's best known on his own for his two brooding English tragedies based on Italian sources. The White Devil, which we're going to talk about a little more today in case you hadn't noticed. This is the episode about the White Devil. Um, it's a retelling of the intrigues involving Vittoria Accoramboni, an Italian woman assassinated at the ripe age of 28. And it was a failure at first when it was staged at the Red Bull Theater in 1612, being too unusual and intellectual for its audience. Um, the Duchess of Malfi also uh, was first performed by the King's Men at the Blackfriars Playhouse in s- around 1614 and published nine years later. And that one was far more successful. Uh, Webster wrote one more play on his own called The Devil's Law Case, which is a tragic comedy. His later plays were collaborative city comedies, Anything for a Quiet Life with Thomas Middleton, Cure for a Cuckold with William Rowley. Um, in 1624, he also co-wrote a topical play about a recent scandal called Keep the Widow Waking with uh, Ford, Rowley, and Decker. Um, so he wrote some shit, liked bloody things, sure and we remember him for his revenge tragedies. Yeah. That's it. They're That's real good. <laughs> they're yeah. so good. I don't even like the Duchess of Malfi, but like I respect that it is a good play. Yeah, for sure. 
So John Webster. That was your life again. Uh, okay. So before we jump into a summary, we always like to give you a five word unhelpful title for the play at hand. Mm-hmm. Mine is hapless women get murdered again. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mine is poison paintings, poisoned helmets, revenge. And that's it. That's the play. We can go home yep. now. Yep. We're done. Uh, All right. Time to clock yeah. out. So yep. <laughs> thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Come back for more. Tune in next week. That's all week. it is. Yeah. <laughs> so no, uh, we'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll tell you about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll tell you about it. Um, we'll tell you about the people, the dramatis personae, but only the really important ones to begin yeah, there's with. There's so many characters in this play. There are. There's a lot. There's a lot. And there's so many in the summary, but like there are way more in the play. Okay. So we're going to start with Lodovico, who's a count who basically spends the first three acts being banished and then sweeps into stir shit up at the end. So uh, don't, 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 don't you forget about him. Get out. Don't, 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 don't you forget about me. Okay. Um, unfortunately, everybody in the play does, basically. Uh, so next we have the Duke of Bracciano. Uh, he's married to Isabella, so she's his wife. There's a guy named Camillo. Yeah. Uh, he's married to Vittoria, so she's his wife. All right, there we go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, there's Flaminio, Vittoria's scheming, pandering brother. Mm-hmm. Then we have, uh, we're going to go, so the internet was not super helpful. Twitter was not helpful with name pronunciations, but we're going to go with Zonki, who is a black servant woman to Vittoria. Probably she is enslaved. Then we have Marcello, <laughs> Vittoria and Flaminio's other brother. They have a mom. Her name is Cornelia. Oh. Uh, then there's also Francisco de' Medici, the Duke of Florence. Uh, we also have Monticelso, who is a cardinal. He also is Camillo's uncle. Don't forget about Camillo, who's married to Vittoria. Uh, we also have Julio, a sexy doctor. Uh, then we have the conjurer, who is, and this is going to blow your mind, someone who conjures. Mm, yes. Uh, and then there's a whole host of ghosts. Servants, lords, ladies, lawyers, nobility, ambassadors from a bunch of fucking countries, mm-hmm. guards, and so on. Gosh, uh, so many characters. There's so many characters. Fuck you, Webster. Like, how is a company of 12 supposed to put on this play? <laughs> so many characters. Um, yeah, so that's who they are. Um, just tell us, why should this play be so goddamn popular? It's a revenge tragedy. There's poison and there's ghosts. Like, what else do you even need? Literally, what else do you even need? Also, it's based on a true story. So, <gasps> I like, do love that. I love yeah, that element. Yeah. yeah. It's like... I love a good just, ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a lot of, like, excellent murdering that happens. <laughs> <laughs> excellent so, murdering. Yes. Like, really, really, really good, good murdering. <laughs> Act five is fucking wild. That's, as with, you yeah. know, most revenge tragedies. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, they so. go balls to the wall in Act 5. That's just yeah, how it is. They really do. Yeah. They really, really do. It's uh, it's summary time. Okay. So we will now summarize the White Devil for you in a segment that this week we're calling, If you're unhappily married, definitely don't murder your spouse because you will be haunted by their ghost and probably also gruesomely murdered yourself. Also, racism isn't cool, kids. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, we ready? We ready to <laughs> yes. do this now? Yes. I have I have my timer. Uh-huh. My stopwatch. And I am ready. So I'm going to take okay. it away. Okay. Uh, so in Act 1, Camillo complains to Flaminio about Vittoria cuckolding him. Flaminio encourages him to lock her up because that is the solution, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Flaminio and Vittoria stage a conversation that is overheard by Camillo that seems to be like Flaminio is chastening Victoria, being like, hey, you should go and like be faithful to your husband. Uh, but actually, he's encouraging her. Flaminio then arranges for an assignation between Vittoria and Bracciano. In this assignation, Vittoria recounts a dream to Bracciano that cleverly entices him to get rid of both his wife and Vittoria's husband. Uh, 
Um, Vittoria and Flaminio's mother Cornelia interferes to challenge the honor of their scheme. She breaks up the love nest. Everyone departs. Flaminio and his mother argue and trade insults. She's such a cock blocker. Anyway, <laughs> act two, Monticelso tells Bracciano to be faithful to his wife, Isabella, but he returns his wedding ring to her and tells her that he will never share her bed and considers them divorced. Brokenhearted, she leaves for Padua. Bracciano and Flaminio ponder how they could murder Camillo. You know, just for funsies. Um, they have to make the, they have a plot to make it look like suicide, and they hire Doctor Julio to poison Isabella. Bracciano and a conjurer enter to work the deaths of Camillo and Isabella. In a dumb show, a picture of Bracciano is poisoned. Isabella enters to bed, kisses the picture goodnight, and dies. In another dumb show, Flaminio and Camillo engage in sport with a vaulting horse. As Camillo begins, Flaminio wrenches him and breaks his neck and then arranges the body to look like it was an accident and calls for help. Instead, Flaminio and Vittoria are arrested. Bracciano and the conjurer make their escape. In Act 3, Vittoria is on trial for her husband's murder. Monticelso calls Vittoria a whore and lays out her crimes. Her greatest offense, maybe, is that like she doesn't act how the men think that she should act, like a widow in mourning, which is some patriarchal bullshit. But anyway... Word. Bracciano explains his presence in her house that night by like saying that he had come to help her husband settle some debts. Bullshit. Monticelso produces a letter from Bracciano to Vittoria in which they plan a day trip to the beach for sexy times. But she's like, <laughs> nah, that's not proof that we actually got together or anything. Like, shut it down. Uh, Monticelso sentences Vittoria to be shut away in a house for penitent whores. Vittoria's son then brings news of Isabella's death. Lodovico, because you didn't, 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 didn't forget about him comes back he secured a pardon he returns to court i 100 percent forgot about him but thank you for reminding me <laughs> act four monticelso tries to convince francisco duke of florence to take revenge for isabella's murder he meditates on revenge and isabella's ghost appears to him he banishes it and then turns his thoughts to victoria for whom he has got the hots as they say. <laughs> Flaminio is trying to secure Vittoria's release. Flaminio and Bracciano read Francisco's love letter to Victoria. Bracciano flies into a rage, calling Victoria a whore, and Flaminio her pander. Vittoria enters, and Bracciano yells at her. She weeps, and then Bracciano and Flaminio try to make up with her. At peace again, the men decide to use tonight to sneak her away, since the Pope is dead and all the cardinals are gathering for the conclave, so the city will be full of confusion. They all go to Padua, where Bracciano can marry Vittoria and make her his duchess. Monticelso is elected the next pope, Paul IV, and a servant brings news to Francisco that Vittoria and Bracciano have fled the city. Monticelso immediately excommunicates them. Lodovico and Francisco plan to murder them. Okay, Act 5, shit's getting real. Ooh, Victoria and Bracciano get married. Francisco and Lodovico are in attendance, but they are disguised, and they're ostensibly just there to, like, curry favor with Bracciano as he prepares for war with the Duke of Florence, but Francisco is the Duke of Florence, so but he's, like, in disguise, you know, okay. So right. Flaminio is revealed to be dallying with Zonke, Victoria's black woman servant, who, again, is probably enslaved. Um, Zonke pledges her love to Francisco, who is disguised as a Moor, Okay, we got some blackface going on. It's not cool, not great, don't love it. Gonna talk about it. Flaminio and his brother Marcello are arranging to duel because they mad at each other. Mama Cornelia comes in. She's like, hey, Fl Marcello, don't, don't fight. Uh, Flaminio enters and runs him through with his sword because, uh, you know, this is a thing that happens. Um, Cornelia then is like, ah, oh, Flaminio, my son, I'm gonna kill you. And she runs it him but then lets her knife fall before she reaches him and instead is like i forgive you because uh -huh. um bracciano refuses to pardon flaminio so flaminio sprinkles bracciano's helmet with poison there's a whole hilarious exchange with the armorer the dying bracciano names vittoria as his regent until their son comes of age lodovico who we didn't 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 forget about again is disguised as a monk and he comes in to uh give 
uh, Bracciano his last rites, but then instead he's just like curses him. Bracciano calls for help, and so Lodovico's like, nah, I'm gonna strangle you. Okay, you're dead now. Uh, Zonki tells Francisco, who is still in disguise, that she knows that Isabella was murdered with a poison picture and Camillo's neck was broken and Flaminio was the author of it all. So in recompense for keeping all of these secrets, she's like, you know what would be justice is I'm going to rob Vittoria tonight. And hey, Francisco, why don't you meet me at the chapel about midnight and then we can run away together. Um, Flaminio begins to feel some pangs of conscience. Then Bracciano's ghost appears. The ghost throws dirt on Flaminio and shows him a skull to signify that his death is very near. Flaminio goes to Vittoria and asks for payment for his service to Bracciano. She refuses. He leaves, but then he comes back with pistols. He threatens her and Zanke, who then persuade Flaminio to let them all commit suicide together. They ask Flaminio to teach them how to do it, to teach them how to commit suicide. <laughs> so he hands the pistols to Zanke, telling her to point one at her own breast and then one at his, and then Vittoria can follow after. They shoot him and they curse him. And they're like, ha ha, now you're dead and we're not. And then he reveals the pistols had no bullets and he was just trying to prove their loyalty to him. But now he's alive and he can punish them. Vittoria calls for help. Lodovico overpowers Flaminio. He strikes both women. He strikes Flaminio. Zanke dies quickly. Then Vittoria. Then Flaminio. Lodovico is arrested and hauled off to prison and torture. The end. Damn. God, that wasn't even close to five minutes and I'm not sorry. Nah, me either. It's all good. Okay. Damn. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we're going to move on now to a taste of text. Yeah in which we read a small but crucial scene from the play to give you just a little bit of its flavor. Um, mm -hmm. This time, we're going to look at Act 2, Scene 2, which is a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a really, really short scene. It's got both mm -hmm. of the dumb shows in it. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's Bracciano and his buddy, The Conjurer. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be, Jess? I would like to read Bracciano Excellent. and The Dumb Shows. Cool. Cool. And I will be the conjurer. Okay. Conjuring uh, things. So, here's a stage direction. Enter uh -huh. Bracciano with one in the habit of a conjurer. Now, sir, I claim your promise. Tis dead midnight, the time prefixed to show me by your art how the intended murder of Camillo and our loathed duchess grow to action. You have won me by your bounty to a deed I do not often practice. Some there are, which by sophistic tricks aspire that name, which I would gladly lose, of, I think, nigromancer? I think it's necromancer. Yeah. I mean, that's literally okay. a gloss, so, sure. yeah. <laughs> uh, as some that used to juggle upon cards, seeming to conjure when indeed they cheat. Others that raise up their confederate spirits bout windmills and endanger their own necks for making of a squib, and some there are will keep a kirtle to show juggling tricks and give out tis a spirit. Besides these, such a whole ream of almanac makers, figure flingers, fellows indeed that live only that only live by stealth, since they do merely lie about stolen goods. They'd make men think the devil were fast and loose without speaking fustian Latin. Pray, sit down. Put on this nightcap, sir, tis charmed. Dun -dun -dun. I'll show you by my strong commanding art the circumstance that breaks your duchess's heart. A dumb show. Enter, suspiciously, Giulio and Cristofero. They draw a curtain where Bracciano's picture is. They put on spectacles of glass which cover their eyes and noses, and then burn perfumes afore the picture and wash the lips of the picture. That done, quenching the fire and putting off their spectacles, they depart, laughing. Enter Isabella in her nightgown, as to bedward, with lights off after her. Count Lodovico, Giovanni, and others waiting on her. She kneels down as to prayers, then draws the curtain of the picture, does three references to it, and kisses it thrice. She faints, and will not suffer them to come near it, dies. Sorrow expressed in Giovanni and in Count Lodovico. She's conveyed out solemnly. Excellent! 
then she's dead. She's poisoned by the fumid picture. "'Twas her custom nightly, before she went to bed, "'to go and visit your picture and to feed her eyes and lips on the dead shadow. "'Dr. Julio, observing this, infects it with an oil and other poisoned stuff, "'which presently did suffocate her spirits. "'Methought I saw Count Lodewick there.' "'He was, and by my art, I, did f I find he did most passionately dote upon your duchess. "'Now turn another way, and view Camillo's far more politic fate. "'Strike louder music from this charmed ground, "'to yield, as fits the act, a tragic sound. "'The Second Dumb Show. "'Enter Flaminio, Marcello, Camillo, with four more as captains. "'They drink healths and dance.' A vaulting horse is brought into the room. Marcello and two more whispered out of the room, while Flaminio and Camillo strip themselves into their shirts as to vault. Compliment, who shall begin? As Camillo is about to vault, Flaminio pitcheth him upon his neck and, with the help of the rest, writhes his neck about, seems to see if it be broke, and lays him folded double as t'were under the horse, makes shows to call for help. Marcello comes in, laments, sends for the Cardinal Monticelso and Duke Francisco, who comes forth with armed men, wonder at the act. Francisco commands the body to be carried home, apprehends Flaminio, Marcello, and the rest, and all go as t'were to apprehend Vittoria. "'Twas quaintly done, but yet each circumstance I taste not fully." "'Oh, t'was most apparent.' You saw them enter, charged with their deep healths, to their boon voyage, and to second that, Flaminio calls to have a vaulting horse maintain their sport. The virtuous Marcello is innocently plotted forth the room, whilst your eye saw, uh, saw the rest and can inform you the engine of all. It seems Marcello and Flaminio are both committed. Yes, you saw them guarded, and now they are come with purpose to apprehend your mistress, fair Vittoria. We are now beneath her roof. T'were fit we instantly make out by some back postern. <laughs> yeah, girl. <laughs> Noble friend, you bind me ever to you. This is so gay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this shall stand as the firm seal annexed to my hand. It shall enforce a payment. <laughs> Sir, I thank you. Both flowers and weeds spring when the sun is warm, and great men do great good, or else great harm. Always leave it to us to make shit queer. End of scene. <laughs> it's hella it gay. When it's gay. <laughs> love it when it's gay. <sighs> oh, wow. There's just so much there. And that was, what, 60 lines? That's like, yeah. yeah. It's, um, I love a dumb show, and I love two dumb shows two back to back. Two dumb shows, and they're fucking elaborate. Like, yeah, they are. Well, we'll talk about that when it's my turn to talk about staging stuff. So why don't you All take right. it away and tell us some some scholarly things? Yeah. Well, I don't. Well, yeah. Okay. So I I've got like three ish things to talk about. Uh, the first is the historical Victoria, because like you know I love a femme fatale. I am about it. Yeah. Uh, about it. Um, so, historical Vittoria was born in Umbria. She was the 10th child of a family of minor nobility. Then her family moved to Rome to make their fortune. Her father turned down several suitors for her before betrothing her to a man who was the nephew of a cardinal. What? Sounds like the play! Uh, the cardinal was in a position to be the next pope, so this was seen as an advantageous marriage. Um, Vittoria had tons of admirers in Rome. People were super into her, but her taste for luxury and extravagance outstripped her husband's means, so pretty soon they were, like, super in debt. Um, one of her most devoted admirers was a guy named Paolo Giordano Iorsini, the Duke of Bracciano, uh, and one of Rome's most powerful men. Her brother, Marcello, figured that, like, having his sister married to a duke would be a super significant step up for everybody, so he murdered Vittoria's husband in 1581. 
Mm. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Sound familiar so mm-hmm. far? Uh, Bracciano's first wife, Isabella, also turned up conveniently dead around the same time. And people started to get just like a little suspicious, just a little bit. Uh, Bracciano proposed to Vittoria. She accepted. They get married. It's all cute. They sail off into the sunset happily ever after. <laughs> just kidding. As soon as she was a duchess, uh, suspicion and jealousy colluded to orchestrate her downfall. Authorities tried to annul her marriage. She was imprisoned in the Castle St. Angelo. And then Pope Gregory XIII died and shit got real. Uh-oh. So remember how her first husband was the nephew of a cardinal who was supposed to be a likely candidate for the next pope? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so Pope Sixtus V... <laughs> <laughs> That's a dumb name. <laughs> yeah. Pope Sixtus V uh-huh. was elected in 1585, and one of his first official papal duties was getting revenge on Vittoria and Bracciano, because revenge is obviously like a deeply held tenet of Catholicism. I don't know if you knew that about Catholicism, I but those bitches did. love revenge. They do. I was raised Catholic. <laughs> Same. Also, sorry I just called all of Catholicism bitches, but I don't actually mean it. I just mean in the context of this play. <laughs> Um, so Vicky and Bo, which is what I'm going to call them now. This is their couple (laughs) names, Vicky and Bo. Uh, they, they got wind of some plans to like off them. So they fled to Venice, but then Bracciano died, uh, and his son from his first marriage inherited the duchy and, Vittoria apparently is like super sad now like now she's like oh woe is me my husband's dead so she decides to like retire quietly to Padua let's remember also that she's like 28 yeah she's super young and she's like well my life's over now so I guess I'll retire this is why men feared the widow right because a lot of these women were widowed young and then they had all the freedom of married ladies and no man to keep them in check sorry continue yeah so Vittoria, Vicky, 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 Miss Vix, uh, she goes off to Padua and Lodovico Orsini, who's a relative of her first husband, comes with her to help her like manage her estate and handle shit, you know. But then they argued. They got into just like a fucking argument and more shit got real. And Lodovico hired assassins to murder her. And then he and what his assassins dick. murdered her. And then he and assassins were like fucking arrested and executed. And that is that on that. Damn. End of story. <laughs> Everybody dead. Uh, and then, like, 60 years later, or 20 years later, some number of years later, <laughs> John Webster was like, hey, remember those Italians that, like, murdered each other? Let me write a play about that. Love it. Um. So then also we got to talk about the blackface in this yeah. play. It's it's not cute. Um. So we have the character Francisco who disguises himself as a Moor and puts on blackface. Um, And then we have the actor playing Francisco in blackface. And then we have Zanke and the actor playing her is also in blackface, but for the whole play. And it's unsurprisingly gross how people in this play talk to and about Zanke unsurprisingly Mm -hmm. it's pretty racist and gross flaminio says i do love that more that witch very constrainedly she knows some of my villainy i do love her just as a man holds a wolf by the ears but for fear of turning upon me and pulling my throat i would let her go to the devil which is like gross like have a little respect she's a human being you fucker so he accuses her of having syphilis he calls her some racial slurs it's super gross uh, Marcelo kicks her. He calls her a strumpet. When Francisco appears in blackface, Zanke then speaks out her own internalized misogynoir. Um, and she says, I ne'er loved my complexion till now, because I may boldly say without a blush, I love you. Um, sidebar, misogynoir is a term that's coined by queer black feminist Moya Bailey to describe the misogyny, which is directed towards black women where race and gender are both factors. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm citing my sources on that in case that is a, a term that is unfamiliar to you or any of our listeners. Um, Lodovico then calls Zanke a devil. Francisco allows her to entertain the idea that he has a crush on her, but only to manipulate her and get information. When she's murdered, she gets a super quick death and very little in the way of a death speech, which I don't love. Um, 
However, she does call up some strength in the moments before her murder, and when her murderer says he's going to kill her, she responds with pride. She says, I have blood as red as either of theirs. Will drink some? Tis good for the falling sickness. I am proud. Death cannot alter my complexion, for I shall ne'er look pale. The editors of the Norton version of this play feel a need to gloss this line, explaining that Zanke says that she can't look pale because she's black. To me, this seems obvious and unnecessary, as if the readers are somehow supposed to have missed her blackness. Am I being overly critical there? What do you think about that? Um, I think lately there's been a lot of debate about, like, what shade of brown constitutes a moor. Okay. Um, which may be part of it. Uh, maybe part of why the editors of the Norton think they need to tell you that she has dark skin. Uh, this was in 2002 also okay. is when this book came out. Sure. Or this anthology. Sure. Um, and I mean, when I say recently, I guess I'm speaking of, I'm thinking back to like the, the tawnying of like Othello's in the, mm-hmm. you know, late mm-hmm. 19th century and that movement sure. through the through the early 20th century of like, oh no, he wasn't like dark skin, dark skin. Right. He was more right. brown. Um so I, I think maybe maybe that is part of it. No, no, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I, mean, I do yeah, know how I feel about that it. That seems pretty obvious to me. Yeah. Without I, a gloss. But again, but we, yes, but you know, we have we're coming at this with specialized knowledge. Um, right. And so maybe maybe, in fact, it is not obvious to students or first time readers. But um, she's called a more in her character description in the DP. I don't know. It just yeah. it felt like an unnecessary highlighting of difference, which is not to say that difference shouldn't be celebrated because I, I think it should. Um, and certainly racial difference on the early modern stage doesn't get enough representation. I don't know. I just the gloss didn't sit well with me. Mm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I can put my finger on exactly why. Also, we don't need mm. to solve this problem tonight. <laughs> what? We can, I, oh, right? Okay. I know. We can just, we can have this conversation. It's okay to not come to an answer. It's okay to just be uncomfortable with these things and sit with it and continue yeah. to think about it and work about it. So, okay. So then also, I just want to briefly have a conversation about the title, The White Devil, who is the white devil? What is the white devil? What are the racial implications of the white devil? Thoughts, Aubrey Whitlock? My first guess maybe would be Vittoria, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. An aristocratic lady mm-hmm. who's got like pale, pure white skin, but who's mm-hmm. actually a devil underneath. Yeah. Um, and of course, and all of the baggage that goes along yeah. with that right the purity of the rich white woman you know yeah i mean it is it it does feel to me um very clearly that there are some racial implications of Mm -hmm. of that title right um whiteness as opposed to blackness right white is supposed to be good and pure and fair and you know all of those things it does seem like webster is using that the title as an oxymoron right yeah 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 um but that that doesn't just have like good versus evil implications, right? It, it has absolutely it has racial implications, and it's gendered as well, right? Like mm-hmm. all of these sort of fair white mm-hmm. virginal good qualities right. are associated with women, right? right. And so femininity where, and yeah, yeah, you might you might not be um, surprised to have a black devil who is a man, right? That seems pretty. Or at least gendered male. I think devils are not human and so are therefore genderless. To us, maybe. I'm not sure what the early moderns thought of that. My friend Courtney is uh, a Miltonist and is big on Paradise Lost and is constantly telling me that angels don't have bodies and therefore don't have gender. So I wonder if the same is true of devils. Mm. Since devils are just fallen Mm. angels. But what about like the devil himself? Because there's always that mm-hmm. that you know the witch is laying with the devil, so like he right. has to have some kind of corporeal form, right? Because witches lay with him. Well, sure, but like Zeus just came down to be a swan, right? And a and bull had sex and a... with Leda, right? So that's a co- co- yeah. co- corporeal form that 
right. is not human. Anyway, right. <laughs> we've birdwalked, uh, which <laughs> is a thing that we do all the time. I just want to cite Kim Hall really quick on mm-hmm. this idea of blackness and whiteness because it's so useful. So useful. Um, so this is from the introduction to her book, Things of Darkness, on pages eight and nine. Uh, she says, even scholars of the black presence in the period, the Renaissance, um, who have made the link between the language of dark and light and the representations of darker skinned peoples play, pay only cursory attention to the ways in which this language, especially in connection to race, is highly gendered. Frequently black in Renaissance discourses is opposed to not, not to white, but to beauty or fairness. And these terms most often refer to the appearance or moral states of women, mm-hmm. um, as in this one guy's derisive example that a black woman is the opposite of fair. She continues and quotes uh, a, a scholar named Peter Fryer, who says, the very words black and white were heavily charged with meaning long before the English met people whose skins were black. Blackness in England traditionally stood for death, mourning, baseness, evil, sin, and danger. White, on the other hand, was the color of purity, virginity, innocence, good magic, right. flags of truce, harmless lies, and perfect human beauty. Right. So, um... It's pretty loaded. It's a really yeah. loaded title. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's those are the questions that I have and some of the answers that I have. What do you what do you got for us? Yeah. Um, well, one thing I noticed while reading the play, uh, and it's just a little textual thing. Um, actors, just watch out because Webster is a big fan of elisions and contractions and a lot of those feel weird. They're, they're not the contractions that we use now. So um, you're going to need to practice with those a little bit to make them sound natural. Um, I do, you know, recognize it as like a, a rhetorical thing of omission to like fit things in the scansion. And also um, there's like a, there's like a casualness or an intimacy that's built up with contractions. So I like that about his, his writing, but just watch out because he used, he does it a lot, like a lot. You know, one of my points too, one of my talking points was the Moors. Not to mention, I feel like it's referenced in the opening stage direction of the play that there's, maybe not the opening stage direction, there was one, where'd it go? When some people entered. And there's a little boy. Um, there's just, there are a lot of, court characters who may or may not also be brown um like okay it's act at the top of act two scene one not act one scene one but like so we have zanke who we've talked about we have francisco who goes in a brown face later um but there's also little jakes the moor who enters with this train of the the medici people so like it, it just makes me wonder how many other servant characters are one people of color in in this court in you know so it just begs for casting this play very carefully uh if you're going to do it just consider who you're putting into which roles and why mm-hmm. and just know mm-hmm. that and i know this is a, a record that i've played over and over again <laughs> on this pod but like semiotics matters you know the the baggage that we bring to interpret a play as well as the baggage that everybody making the play brings to the play mm-hmm. fucking matters. So just, it's a thing you got to be aware of it before you can like make conscious decisions about it. So just be careful when you're casting and think very thoughtfully and deeply about, about all of the roles in this play, frankly. Yep. Um, one thing that should be a delight to stage are those dumb shows. Huzzah. They're conjured Ooh. by a conjurer. Yay. <laughs> um, I have a question, though. Here's my question. Yeah. Is the conjurer a real conjurer, or is he just a big, fat faker like the rest of them? Oh, I see. I see. I see. Because in the stage direction, it says, Enter Bracciano, Bracciano with one in the habit of a conjurer. So mm-hmm. it's just a guy dressed like a conjurer. Mm-hmm. But he also, like, I just read these lines. Like, he doth protest too much, methinks, in mm-hmm. selling his own abilities, right? He's like, other guys will fool you with juggling. That's such amateur hour. But I can do blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. I just I just wonder. I mean, yes, the dumb shows, they clearly happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as to whether the Conjurer is actually, like, making this shit happen or if he just happens to put Bracciano in the right place at the right time to see this shit, like... 
I don't know. It's a fun, I think, a fun staging question that you might mm -hmm. be interested to try to answer. I um, can dig it. Yeah. Uh, I also, you know, as always with the question with dumb shows is like, how do you do it? Do you want to use puppets? Do you want to like... <laughs> Do you, I'm not joking. Like, do you want to, you know, have the actual actors act it out? Mm -hmm. You could. You can also do shadow puppetry or actual yeah. literal puppetry. You could do, you know, a projection, depending on the type of technology you have in your theater. Like, just think about how to do this dumb show. And like, do you want to animate it? Like, I don't know. Like, it might be it might be really cool. It's a really fun opportunity to, like, bring in some other mediums. Um, or even other performance styles um, into the show. The stage directions in general, I find, are really fun in this yeah. play. They're Very... like, yeah, they're just like specific. Yeah. <laughs> um, Webster even goes so far as as giving acting notes every once in a while, like <laughs> enters distractedly, you know, things like that. Like you don't see that very often um mm -hmm. i know webster's a little bit like later he's a little bit after shakespeare after marlowe yeah. a little bit past those guys but so i know that the the form was changing right but it's not something you encounter a lot is like acting notes um yeah. usually you get those in like embedded stage directions right um so i love that webster is actually kind of specific about that and also just finally like if victoria is not on your bucket list of roles to play what are you even doing with your life She's got some incredible speeches. I don't know. I think she's kind of badass. I enjoyed her. Like, she, yeah, you know, she fucks around on her husband and she, you know, plots some murders and things like yeah. that. <laughs> like, she's not, like, likable always. But she, like, she's kind of the way she's I feel about the, the Duchess. Yeah, she's a strong yeah. lady. I think Webster is really good at, at least in those two plays, in Duchess and in this one, he's got, like, sort of ball buster yeah. female characters who eventually die. Yeah kind of sad but yeah yeah that's what i got that's what i got yeah. i think this would be a fun play to do i wish more companies would do it my favorite thing in this play is the poisoned beaver <laughs> um because <laughs> it's just it's so funny beaver uh yeah so uh, the beaver is a helmet. It's it's the, yes. the historic word for helmet. And in our summary, we said poison helmet because I wasn't about to stop and like chuckle over poison beavers in the middle of our summary, which was already like <laughs> seven and a half minutes. Um, <laughs> but I, it's poison beaver. Ma, <laughs> ma. Anyway, uh, do we have? We haven't done this. This is a new segment. Do we? This do is we a new segment. Sound? Should we? What is the play and what is my part? I I love it. Okay. Done. I don't know. This is uh, something. <laughs> All right. It's um, now time for Keeping Up with the Queen's Men. They're like the Kardashians, except they're actually worth your time. So yeah, so uh, in our in our previous episode, we talked to you all about the Queensmen. Uh, this season, we're going to take you through some of the Queensmen plays. So this week, we're going to talk about Friar Bacon, Friar Bungay, mm -hmm. um, which was written probably in about 1589, printed in 1594. Uh, it is most commonly attributed to Robert Greene these days. I don't actually know if there is um, debate about that. I. I think it's Robert Greene. I think Robert Greene wrote this play. I'm going to say that. All right. Uh, so let me tell you what happens in this play. Excellent. Are you ready? So Prince yep. Edward is in love with the country wench, Margaret, and he orders his friend Lacey to woo Margaret on his behalf. This will not go wrong in any kind of way. Nah. Uh, Lacey does this, but then Margaret falls in love with Lacey instead of the prince. What? Who saw that coming? Not me. Uh, meanwhile, Friar Bacon is being questioned by his academic superiors who suspect him of practicing black magic. Bacon shows Prince Edward the events of the wooing in Suffolk through a magic mirror. Uh, Lacey is wooing Margaret for himself. They are going to get married by Friar Bungay. Bacon magically strikes Bungay dumb through the magic mirror and then through the magic mirror brings Bungay to Oxford for dinner. Edward rides off to Suffolk to confront Lacey. Friar Bacon creates a brazen head which will lecture in philosophy and surround England with a defensive wall of brass. But he's like super tired from staying up all night waiting for it to speak. So he goes to bed and he appoints his scholar Miles to keep watch and to wake him when it starts talking. The head speaks enigmatically and then is magically destroyed. Miles does not wake up his master in time. So Bacon sacks him and then sends a devil to carry him to hell. That seems harsh. 
Right? That's a proportional response. Um, two country squires want to marry Margaret. She asks instead for 10 days grace to make a decision. She's confident that Lacey's going to come and get her before then. What actually happens is that she gets a letter telling her that Lacey is going to get married to someone else. So she decides to enter a nunnery. The two squires kill each other in a duel. Uh, and their sons, who are watching from Oxford through Bacon's magic mirror, also kill themselves each other in a duel. Because that makes wow. sense bacon smashes the mirror in remorse and he renounces magic Lacey arrives in suffolk to tell margaret that he was only testing her constancy because that's never gone wrong in the history of early modern drama he no, persuades never. her to abandon her nunnery vows there's a double wedding prince edward gets married to eleanor of castile and Lacey and margaret get married to each other friar bacon predicts the future it's going to be war followed by the emergence of a great and bountiful queen of england hmm cool right uh you know in the in the 1580s talking about queen elizabeth yeah sure um so also the play has a dragon that shoots fire so pyrotechnics on this play were probably pretty good would be my guess uh it was performed we know on april 1st 1594 by the queens and sussex's men at the rose henslow was paid two pounds for this performance two whole pounds two whole pounds Don't, don't spend it all in one place buddy yeah um actually so, that was quite a lot of money for them yeah, <laughs> yeah. two quid not now not so much but yeah. yeah uh so keep this in mind um we'll we'll call your attention back to it in the late spring or early spring in the early spring late winter um and maybe we'll do a full episode so yeah yeah that's this what is the one of the contenders <laughs> yep yeah like oh my god that's what the queensmen mm. were doing in 1589 oh right I've never, ever watched an episode of the Kardashians, but I can kind of guess that this is what they sound like, only uh, with way more privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> well, that's what the Queen's men were doing. Let's mm-hmm. gossip a tiny bit and get, then get the fuck out of here. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so last time we told you about the St. Anne's Donmar trilogy, yes. uh, Her- the Harriet Walter Caesar Henry for Tempest um, yeah. that are streaming. Uh, well, they're going to be done streaming before you will hear this episode, but I hope that you listened last time and you heard and you did and you streamed. Um, I watched The Tempest uh, over the weekend and oh my God, it's so good. I actually liked The Tempest for once. Um, so no spoilers, but the the way they end it within the frame, I think is so well done. It's really fucking bleak and a a lot of people had I, I have heard a lot of criticism of how bleak it is in the end I really am into it I think I think that's the way to do it and I think I never want to see the Tempest end in any way that is not bleak ever again I think that is appropriate for the story so it's real good um, I hope that you got a chance to watch it and or it streams again in the future and you can watch it Aubrey what do you got yeah um we have been remiss in not touting this sooner, apparently, yeah. but I wanted to let everybody know that our friends up in uh, at the Hedgepig Ensemble are doing this project called the Expand the Canon Project, um, which you should totally check out. They've got a presence on Facebook now and I think on Twitter. Uh, ch- check them out on the social medias. But this is from their website. This is how they describe it. The Expand the Canon is an annual curated list of excellent and producible classic plays by women and underrepresented genders. Both a celebration and a call to action, Expand the Canon demands space in the classical canon for more diverse playwrights, many of whom were underproduced or utterly unproduced in their lifetimes. We call upon our national and international theater community to expand its definition of classical theater and include these brilliant writers and artists in their production seasons, publications, classrooms, and beyond. And they have an incredible... Um, list uh, for the inaugural Expand the Canon year, which you can check out. We'll throw their link uh, on our website. They compiled a list of nearly 600 and growing plays and read 150 of them for their 2020 list. Uh, and they're, so they're dropping titles sporadically and they're going to, they do like, they're going to be doing readings of them, mm. uh, virtual readings that, that you can watch uh, and so you can hear the words of these plays. It's going to be really cool. So we just wanted to shout them out. It's not necessarily Mm -hmm. Shakespeare gossip, but they do find some of the plays on their list are like 
early modern-ish or mm-hmm. early modern adjacent mm-hmm. authors. Um, and it's just a cool project. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a great. cool project to yeah. shout out I, regardless. They've been in touch with us. Um, we we had a, a meeting of the minds over the summer to talk yeah. about strategies for getting the word out. Um, and then it was still a pandemic and we forgot. So we're sorry. We're sorry, <laughs> Hedgepig. Uh, but we believe in you. And also hi to Greg and Sarah, who we love. And also everyone else at Hedgepig, but like we know Greg and Sarah and we love them. (laughs) So yeah. Word. Yeah. So that's it. That's what we got. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week. We're going to be revisiting the first part of Henry the Sixth. It's going to be a 201 episode. I'm fucking stoked. I hope you're fucking stoked. This is one of the I'm two so history stoked. plays that I like. So. Yep. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm here for it. Come on. Come on back next time. It's not next week, but it's next time in two weeks. Come on back. That's right. Wham it out. Burly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla h-o-l-l-a at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com you can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on instagram or at hurlyburlyshake no s on twitter i acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which i record the muskegee creek nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present i acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as stanton virginia the Monacan and Manahoac nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Also, when you began that sentence, if you're unhappily married, I just wanted to be like, clap your hands. If you're unhappily married, clap your hands. Um... If I you're unhappily married, definitely don't murder your spouse because you'll end up haunted by their ghost and probably grisomely murdered yourself. <gasps> Clap your hands. <laughs> <laughs>